0: I
1: like to see a certain form of realism within a pitch deck.
0: This is the question that I like to ask every publisher that I meet with. How many games you saw last year and how many games did you sign?
1: Personally, I feel it's about finding each other's niche these days, uh, both on the development side, but also on the publishing side.
0: What would be your number one suggestion to somebody who wants to enter the industry?
1: If they're out there and getting all these opportunities, why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't we be able to speak about things we have created that we are proud about?
0: Welcome to Biz Dev Quest, Episode 3, the podcast about video games, business people, and their quest for success. I'm your host, Gianpaolo Vernocchi, co-founder and creative director at DestinyBit. This episode was recorded less than two weeks ago, uh, right after my country of Italy was put under soft lockdown due to the coronavirus. Unfortunately, since then, the situation has worsened quite a bit. Um, Numbers keep going up and up, and it's really an unnerving feeling. Today was a slightly better day. Uh, We saw a first glimpse of a dip, but we can only hope this can continue. I debated in my head whether or not to mention any of this, uh, but it's very hard to avoid, especially being in the middle of it all. I will try to keep these updates as brief as possible going forward. The rest of the world, uh, especially the U S seems to be starting to wake up to the seriousness of the disease. I'm sure if you're listening that, you know, uh, that the best thing you can do is stay home, uh, but my personal suggestion to you now is strengthen your community. Um, these are the time of needs when we need to help our fellow men, starting with our family and friends, then neighbors, local businesses, hospitals, and institutions. Uh, Let's try to help each other out, starting with the people that are the closest to us. Uh, I'm generally very skeptical of people who want to save the world. It's generally too big and complex of a task, but you can always help your local community. And I promise you, right now, they need your help. Find out if you can donate to your local hospital, help your older neighbors with groceries, help people who will be out of a job for a while. Um, These are times of crisis and what I really admire about my countrymen is that Italians really do band together in times of crisis and I hope that can happen throughout the world as well. Today's guest is Christopher Wolf. He is the publishing director of Those Awesome Guys, which are known for games such as Move or Die, Monster Prom and the upcoming Floppy Nights. I gotta say from a developer standpoint, this was a really interesting chat. Uh, We talked about what makes a good pitch deck whether or not we should include sales estimates and whatnot. Really fascinating conversation. Chris is also involved in putting together Talk and Dev, which is a game developer event that takes place in Munich, Germany. And we got a chance to talk about volunteering, how the coronavirus is going to change the industry, uh, and especially an industry that revolves so much around events. And Chris even shared some useful tips for people who are looking to enter the video games industry. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I think it's scattered with really, really interesting insight. As always, please let me know if you have any feedback regarding the show on Facebook and Twitter at BizDevQuest. And now, let's get to the conversation. All right, Chris, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Good. How about you? Thank you for having me. No problem. Um, I am uh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you know, lockdown in Italy. Um, this is a pretty weird podcast for those listening. Um, uh, the whole country of Italy was locked down, was put into lockdown just uh, yesterday. Um, uh, I, I asked Chris if uh, he wanted to discuss the coronavirus at all during the podcast. We, we thought it was an, an unavoidable topic, it's just too big uh, to avoid. But um, I wanted to start with something uh, perhaps a little bit more lighthearted. Um, there was one tweet that I saw from you. Uh, I think it was towards the end of last year that mm-hmm. recap your year in travel, no oh, God <laughs> uh, and, and you said, that you travel like two hundred and something days is that is that possible?
1: yeah i I would have to check uh, on the exact number, but it must be somewhere in the range of like two hundred seventy two hundred eighty days, I think at least that's what I recall from the back of my memory so how
0: how is that for you do do you do you enjoy the travel? Do you miss home? How is that?
1: Oh, I I enjoyed a lot. I mean, uh, growing up in uh, in Munich, Munich basically became my home. Originally, I was born somewhere like in northern Germany, but I uh, never had like that real huge tie to being home. I enjoy meeting people. I enjoy hanging out with friends. And with the games industry being so international, it just so happens that kind of most of my friends are not where I live. Um, so home really for me became being on the road. Like I I get rather nervous when I'm at one location, like in, in Bucharest with the team or in Munich with my family for more than, let's say two weeks. So really no complaints. I, I enjoy traveling a lot, although that will probably change next couple of weeks with the ongoing situation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, that is going to be pretty interesting. Um, I kind of want to tie that into sort of like a business question. You, you <laughs> meet a lot of people while traveling. Um, and, uh, this year is going to be interesting. Uh, we won't do a lot of meetings. Um, does an online meeting work as well, an online pitch, something like that? Does that work as well as a face-to-face meeting or is, or a face-to-face meeting is almost like a requirement for any relationship to, to grow or to begin even?
1: I don't think, th- I don't think it's an a, re- uh, a requirement. I was uh, fortunate enough over the last couple of years to do mostly face-to-face meetings or at least sometime or Throughout the timeline of working with someone or starting a relationship with someone in, in the video games industry, um, due to the sheer amount of events I went to, I usually ended up meeting them at some point. Um, again, this might change. We we don't really know what the next couple of months or year of like game dev events will look like. Uh, but for, for me personally, it doesn't make too much of a difference if it's online or um on site at an event. Like most of the time, the on site meetings are just to sort of get a personal Connection to someone uh, and now we'll just have to shift that to online, which is perfectly fine. Honestly.
0: Yeah So uh, you were supposed to give out a a, a Talk at GDC, um, which mm-hmm. unfortunately was canceled um, Which I think is titled the art of the
1: pitch deck is that correct? Yeah, correct That was going to be me and Alan Dang hosting a talk together, right? So um, I'm a pitch deck nerd. Um, mm-hmm.
0: I, 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 treat them uh, very, very well. Uh, and, uh, I think they are a very important tool. Um, but I never asked to anybody on the other side, um, how you guys, uh, judge what we present you because the way I see it is, um, the first face-to-face meeting at an event, um, is mostly just to gauge each other. Uh, it's it's really hard that you will come home and be like yes I want to sign that game. I think that's sort of like the, the beginning of a process. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pitch deck is step two, but I still consider the pitch deck sort of like a um, a foot in the door. And then it's just all about the conversation and and then starting to talk if we believe in the project as well. Um, am I far off? How do you see it from from
1: your side? I do agree. I mean, especially if we're talking about sort of the on-site introduction meeting rather than like a Skype or Discord call or just an email conversation. Uh, I feel like on-site often ends up being more about sort of the basics. Um, Basics for me are the elevator pitch, the funding that you require, um, your timeline for the project, and a little bit personal vibe. Mm -hmm. Um, Anything beyond that can be discussed, obviously, like Throughout the process of talking to or talking between publisher or fund and developer, um, but yeah, the the pitch deck, if if that's a thing that um, you end up sending over as sort of the next step, or the build, seemed to be for me at least the the next step in the process. So yeah, I think putting it as a step as a foot in the door. Seems about right in most cases. Obviously, there's some cases that are a little bit special. Um, one example is a title that we recently signed where we met them at a convention. Uh, they showed us their pitch deck there on site already. And uh, we basically, from the get go, were pretty convinced we wanted to start a relationship with that team. Mm. Um, but those cases are rather rare, honestly. Uh,
0: what is your average, like um, from the day you meet to the day you sign? Uh, how much time do you think it? It is on average for you guys?
1: Tricky question. Uh, We honestly haven't signed too many titles yet just because we're a tiny team and are very much all hands on deck when it comes to the projects that we sign. Um, In the past for the most recent project as an example I think it was somewhere around it must have been six to eight weeks at the end of the day probably closer to eight weeks Uh, and generally speaking that was sub- that was a project that we really wanted to push forward uh, on both ends to get signed rather quickly, but due to legal proceedings and um, kind of the back and, forth, back and forth on both sides with the individual lawyers of both teams, things just tend to take a little bit longer. Especially since we don't have a standardized contract that it's that we offer to devs as a take it or leave it deal. We're more of the um, more on the side of discussing and figuring out a a good middle ground for everyone.
0: Right. Uh, so I don't want to spoil too much of your talk. Uh, I hope it will resurface somewhere else. Good. uh In uh, in a different in a different form. Uh, but I do want to ask you possibly like the uh, the the thing that makes you go yes in a pitch deck and the and the thing that makes you just cringe and be like <laughs> and close the the document and move on
1: to the next one. Oh, let, let's start with the cringy one. Um, there, there's a couple of things for me. It's a lot of. Uh, A lot of decisions are based on not only the game itself, but also the team. So for me, personally, I want to know that for the one, two, three, four years that our relationship with the development team will go on for, ideally, uh, we will get along. Um, Obviously, no one gets along all the time. um, But as much as possible, there should be a certain vibe between the teams. And part of that for me is also expectations. If there is a development team that is pitching us a project uh, that will cost them 50,000 US dollars, that's just a random number I'm pulling out of my hat right now, and are convinced that their game will lift up um, to kind of the sales expectations of major IPs like Pokemon and Yokelele and all these different uh, projects that, that have sold hundreds of thousands or millions of copies throughout their lifetime, that's already a very negative side for me i'm I'm german i'm generally pessimistic so i like to see a certain form of realism um within a pitch deck and that can be certain sales expectations or target audiences uh, across multiple different games so maybe a worst case a sort of middle ground and a base case scenario but if someone is telling me their game will definitely sell a million copies then i'm definitely not going to believe that yeah that's something that i'm very careful about um especially not only for sort of the investment that we're t- putting towards the project, but in the end, if we're working with that team and them and us together cannot deliver upon their own expectations that they raised so high, that will also leave a certain kind of bitter taste in their mouth. So we want to avoid that. Right. That's I like guess like one of many cases. So what? What for the good one? Good one is a team that knows what they're doing, and that's a very vague answer. But anything from having a budget that feels accurate where there's a certain leeway of I think like industry standard at this point is probably from my point of view anywhere between like 10 and 30% added on top to make sure there's uh, a certain window uh, of time that can be added in the worst case where the game doesn't meet its deliverable milestone or even post-launch you won't get money from day one on just because the um, the platform that you're going to sell your game through will take a certain time. And then the publisher will take a certain time to process all of that and get you your money. So knowing that a team can plan ahead and are a little bit realistic when it comes to that is a very good sign. The elevator pitch is what usually does it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a couple of statistics that we collected throughout the preparation for our GDC talk that um, just basically underlined how little time each publisher has to spend on a pitch deck on average um i don't i can't recall the exact amount of time from the back from the back of my head but it was in the seconds to minutes um yeah. and low amount of minutes again based on the publisher that you talk to uh, a major publisher obviously will spend less time with your game pitch than a tiny publisher that just gets like 20 pitches every month um so that's that's the thing to keep in mind but yeah for me being realistic, um, having a good eleva- elevator pitch overall, and generally interesting game design that is distinctive and makes your game stand out from anything else, those are factors I pay attention to very much.
0: Um, you mentioned uh, sales figures. Yeah. Uh, this is something I debated with other developers. Uh, and I was like, uh, uh, "It's." I-, I was under the impression that it was useless to put sales figures on the pitch deck, Mm -hmm. simply because you are making the same calculations in your head. Mm -hmm. And so I can put there, whatever. Uh, and, uh, I will put there, yeah, I, I like the three scenarios, the pessimistic, realistic and optimistic scenarios that that's how I do it. But I, I tend to do that in a separate document if you ask me, cool. but otherwise, uh, it, it's kind of weird for me to, to put some numbers on a pitch deck because in my head it's like, okay, the publisher is already running the numbers in his head. Uh, and he's already possibly already from the, from the get go, from the elevator pitch, he can be like, this is 20,000 copies. Um. Th- is that is that true? Is that wrong? Is that am I, am I far off?
1: Uh, I tend to totally agree. I mean, I personally, if I see some sales estimates in a pitch deck, the only thing I take away from that is how um, how optimistic or realistic or even pessimistic a developer maybe is about their own project. Right. And that's obviously very subjective because I have my own personal opinion about how much um, potential a certain project has. I don't really care to see sales estimates from a developer's perspective too much, yeah. just because, as you mentioned, it's it's a number. Uh, it's very subjective. Everyone will have their own conclusion. The one thing that I take away from that in general, and that's why I really like uh, when developers try to put their game or connect their game with a target audience, is again, see how, how much our Um, own viewpoints overlap in terms of uh, the audience that we're going for and again maybe even the sales figures that we're aiming for with the project that's the only thing I'm not going to make a decision based on oh the developer told me the game is going to sell 200,000 units so that's probably going to happen that would probably be a very bad sign if a publisher judged a pitch based on that
0: right yeah so I guess guess, uh, what I hear is that um, it's more about presenting the idea that you have a good game with a good concept and that you know what you're doing in in terms of, uh, you can correctly estimate the, the, the scope of the project, how much it's going to sell, uh, the target audience and all of that. And basically that speaks more about your character, uh, I guess than anything else. And that plays into the initial thing that you said about, we are sort of like marrying each other for a few years and so everything must go well.
1: Yeah, to a certain degree. Um, for me, at the end of the day, I think the most important factor, obviously, with the game pitch is getting me excited. Because if, if the developer manages to get me excited enough about the project that I really want to sign it, I will, as a publisher, probably be a little bit more flexible in terms of amount of funding that we can provide. Like, let's say, again, a random number from um, that I'm just pulling out of a hat. Mm-hmm. Let's say we, as a publisher, only provide Funding up until three hundred thousand U.S. dollars, and someone comes to us with a do- with a project that will cost four hundred thousand U.S. dollars. If you manage to get me excited enough about the project, I might be able to find ways of making that possible. Right. Um, but if the first thing I see is X amount of funding over what we usually do, and the elevator pitch is so and so, and the game doesn't grasp my attention, then It'll simply be a no because it's outside of our reach in terms of funding again.
0: And and, and so this is the question that I like to ask every uh, publisher that I meet with. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many games you saw last year and how many games did you sign?
1: We signed a single game last year and we must have reviewed somewhere between 350 and like high 400 uh, pitches overall. Jesus. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, it's a very low percentage. Th-
0: yeah, th- that's and that's and that's fine to me. Uh, I mean, the what I was talking about with um, uh, a previous guest uh, of this podcast, Zach Antonacci, mm-hmm. uh, I was asking him if um, your guys' job is getting any easier, uh, because it seems like uh, there is an overabundance of offer from the developer side. And uh, from our point of view, the main issue is that everybody's making good games. And so now it's all about the, being in the top 1% uh, of, of games that, that get signed. Is your job getting any easier? Like uh, The fact that you're seeing 300 games means that the chances of signing a good
1: game are getting higher? I guess so. Um, at the same time, I think... While there's more and more developers than ever before, there's luckily also more and more money than ever before in this industry. And that's not only publishers, but if you're uh, looking for just pure investment or project-based investment for your company, finally, these days you have alternatives. Uh, I think a good example, a company that kind of took over the industry and everyone speaks about them these days as a positive example is Kowloon Knights. They established themselves very quickly. They've signed some fantastic titles or invested into some fantastic titles. I guess it's the right, exp- um, the right uh, way of putting things. And um, so therefore, on our end of the spectrum, it's also become a little bit more competitive to some degree. Mm-hmm. Personally, I feel it's about finding each other's niche these days, uh, both on the development side, but also on the publishing side. Uh, the way I usually explain what we at TAG do is investing into projects that we can be very hands-on with, Uh, We like to give concrete feedback. We also like to receive concrete feedback from the developers and just be very open in our processes. So we have like a shared Discord server with every team that we work with and like to have more of a daily communication with everyone rather than being the publisher that checks in once a month and then sends you your check and then goes to you again for for the next four weeks. So uh, with that, we try to not only invest into teams or I guess projects, that we see fit and that we enjoy, but also that we can turn into something bigger because we're investing so much time to ideally turn the projects that we work with into an IP rather than having just a one-time off launch and then moving on to the next project. Um, I feel that that's becoming more of a thing where publishers are finding their own character uh very positive examples are fellow traveler that have sort of established themselves as the narrative publisher and then on the other side there is someone like uh, annapurna that does i feel like games as an art form um is sort of a fitting example of their portfolio right now
0: yeah you mentioned the IP. uh how do you feel about that um uh, because um um i said this to an investor and i got and i got a very bad look but i i feel like ip overall lost some of the charm that it had a few years ago. Um, like uh, when the first, uh, maybe not, not the first, but let's say during the indie golden age, you know, mm-hmm. uh, of the fezes and, and the, and the limbos of this world. Right. Um, that, that's where I, I, I remember the conversation back then being like, oh, uh, you must absolutely protect your IP. Your IP is king and all that. But nowadays with so many games, it feels to me like the IP matters only if, the game is suited for it uh so if it can be translated into sequels or other stuff and if the game is successful mm-hmm. so if if the game is not successful ip is less relevant how do you see it do, do, do you think it's still very very important
1: or uh, or not i i definitely think a developer should still aim to protect their ip in an ideal scenario and we're all aiming for that ideal scenario your game will be successful and your ip will be worth more than it was initially when you started a conversation with a publisher. So I think it's very valid to put the IP first and ensure that as a developer, you can hold on to it. Um, later on, there's always opportunities to find a partner to potentially have uh, in, invest into your company or even uh, buy the IP off of you. I believe um, based on again just from the back of my head a similar thing happened with raw in kingdom where they acquired the kingdom ip at some point further down the road to continue development and, and do whatever afterwards mm-hmm. um and i think that's a fair strategy to go if you're a publisher um especially in the indie market that is going into deals with the anticipation of taking away the developer's ip i'm personally not a big fan of that and I, me personally, if I was a development studio, entering an agreement, I would shy away from selling my IP as part of that deal. Mm,
0: interesting. Um, so uh, those awesome guys, um, you you said it's a small company, so uh, you guys are probably a very tight neat group and you you, you all talk together. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder, um, how much time do you spend thinking about where are you going and, and where you want to be? either in the near future or in three years?
1: I can't necessarily speak for the entire company. That's just on a person-by-person basis. Me personally being sort of in charge of the direction of the publisher, together with Nick, the CEO, um, I think about it a lot. I think it's getting more and more important with the rise of all these indie publishers, including ourselves. Like we're a developer that at some point decided to do publishing as well and a lot of people are doing that so i think it's important to be distinctive to stand out from the huge crowd and therefore also having a a direction that you're heading towards or into and for me that's something that i put a lot of emphasis on when pitching us as a publisher to other people as i've mentioned like our whole our whole spiel is turning a game ideally into something bigger into an ip or one term that we like to use, sounds super cheesy, is a games as community. Mm-hmm. So similar to games as a service, but more with the focus of community building rather than uh, sort of the free-to-play aspect that that's somewhat connected to that term. Um, so yeah, in general, to, like, the short answer is I spent a lot of time thinking about the direction that we're heading into, both in the short-term run, but also in the three-year scheduling. Uh, do you...
0: Uh, Do you also do um, stuff like uh, having the developers of the various games meet with each other and form a community or exchange resources and stuff like that? Is that something that you promote
1: uh, among your developers? I'd love to. Uh, So far, I don't think we've really had that chance. Uh, The two two companies that we've worked with in the past or right now that I can talk about are Beautiful Glitch, uh, the developers of Monster Prom and Rose City Games who are making Floppy Nights. Which looks great, by the way. Sorry to interrupt, but oh. it, it looks amazing. I appreciate it. Yeah, that's all. Um, it's led by Marla Dobby, um, who's absolutely stunning. Like she's incredible. So thank you. I, I appreciate it. I'll, I'll let her know. Um, where was I? Oh yeah. So I know that they've talked in the past about uh, well how it was to work w- with us when the Rose City Games uh, crew was considering entering that agreement with with us. I don't think there's too active communication overall, it might also be a sort of a time zone difference because there's a eight or nine hour time zone difference between the two teams um, in the future for sure. But right now we were too small to really be thinking about that in the, in the long run.
0: Right. Th- bringing people to people together is something that you like to do i guess because um you are one of the organizers of talk and dev in wow in you did Europe, your research in munich yeah. i mean i mean i try to be a professional about this podcasting thing oh, i'm course. still re- learning but uh, <laughs> um no but um actually this was one of the first things that um, i discovered about you uh, after we met is that mm-hmm. you, your activity with talk and dev and uh, personally i try to uh, gather any piece of information, any piece of knowledge that I can find, uh, on the internet about any kind of topic revolving around game dev and, cool. and talk dev, uh, uh, was, was pretty cool. Um, how that, uh, came to mind to you, was that you trying to build something for your community in Munich or wanting to share something with the world? How, how was that? The how was the
1: process? Yeah, a couple of things uh, actually came into place when, when forming Talk and Dev. Um, Talk and Dev is now about two and a half years old. We premiered it in September of 2018. 17. Uh, yeah, September of t- 2017. And uh, basically, it's uh, sort of a an upgrade to the Game Dev Tech Talk, which we organized before that in Munich. Uh, a friend of mine, Alex, who who lives in London now, he was organizing a lot of uh, activities in the local Munich scene. And at some point, uh, I guess the the folks that were doing the so-called game dev tech talk didn't have the resources or the time anymore to do so. So he went on Twitter and was like, "Hey, does anyone want to take this over?" And back then, me and and another buddy who unfortunately isn't organizing the event anymore decided to give it a shot and basically take over the event series. The whole intention was one: I like local communities. I think for a for a sustainable industry, uh, the local communities make a huge difference. Um, a good example, again, Bro City Games in, in Portland, they've created the so-called Pig Squad, mm-hmm. which is a impressive like standout local community that's super supportive. And um, even on a international level, when talking to one team, that's from the local Portland scene, they will talk about their other teams in those collectives or those uh, scenes and therefore amplify each other's voices, Mm. which is great for everyone. Um, So for Talk and Def, as mentioned, the local factor came into place, but also back then I was already working in events with the Indie Mega Booth and um, I really wanted to do my own thing. I really enjoyed working with them and learned a lot from that experience, but I've always felt like doing my own thing on the side uh, sort of takes away from that frustration where sometimes you cannot get your own thing uh, or your own idea sort of executed in a bigger company environment, which is perfectly normal, uh, especially as someone that's sort of new to the industry. So talk and dev turn into this thing where I could do whatever I want. And well, me and the co-organizers, because it's our little baby. Right. Um, Yeah. So th- those two factors were mainly in place.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh- Correct me if I'm wrong, but um, this is sort of like the way you got into the industry, right? Organizing events, being part of them, like volunteering—is that—is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's very accurate. Uh, I started volunteering at I think it was Gamescom 2014 when the the Mega booth was there, and through some tw- some tweet on Twitter, I actually got familiar with them and heard that they were volunteering. And one volunteering gig in Germany where I'm based out of turned into a volunteering gig at PAX East in Boston a couple of months later, and then sort of does that whole thing just spiraled into me being more and more excited about doing volunteering. And at some point, Megabooth offered me a job in the industry, um, after I had worked for a different games company in Munich called Salmi games for some time. So, uh, volunteering has basically led me into the games industry. I see. And, uh, this
0: is the first time I, I know this podcast is called Biz Dev Quest, but mm-hmm. this is the first time I asked this question. Uh, where are you in your quest and where are you going next? Uh, as
1: a company or individual?
0: As an individual, you know, you started as you started as a by doing a lot of volunteering and mm-hmm. events, uh, and now you are publishing director at those awesome guys. So mm-hmm. uh, how do you feel about your quest so far? And uh, where do you want to go next?
1: I feel very happy about uh, how how things have gone very fortunate overall. Um, I mean, I I have had the privilege growing up in in Germany and living with my parents, so I could do whatever and not have to worry Mm -hmm. too much because there was always like a a bed I could fall back into or a nest I could fall back into. Um, But overall, yeah, very fortunate. These days with, with Tag, I really want to grow the publishing arm into something bigger. I've only been around with the company for a year now And we've made uh, a lot of progression over time. I'm super excited to be working on Floppy Nights and uh, some other stuff that we'll be announcing over the the next while, I guess. But for me, the next step is definitely to step up our game with TAG, um, put some more projects out there, both on the publishing and the internal development side, which we're still doing. And then afterwards, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't have any plans right now that would take me away from TAG. So we'll have to see what comes next. Hopefully, not for a good amount of time.
0: Uh, I, you, you can tell that uh, I'm not a great professional because I don't know, I don't have this information. How old are you? Oh no, that's perfectly fine. Uh, Twenty-three. You are extremely young. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, for, for a while, you know, I started working when I was 13, uh, wow. I started working in the board games industry and th- for a while I was the youngest kid in the room. Uh, I still am kind of a lot of the, a lot of the times, uh, how is that for you?
1: Cause I'm sure you are as well. Yeah. Uh, these days I don't notice it too much anymore. Uh, there is definitely, it's very obvious in like initial, uh, conversations. Like when I set up a meeting to meet someone at, a, at an event and they've only seen pictures online or maybe even not that, but just by my email coming into the inbox, they don't know what to expect. And when I show up as someone that arguably doesn't look like I'm 23, like I, I, I tend to joke that I'm the 14-year-old in a room, um, <laughs> it's definitely surprising for a lot of people, especially folks that work in more corporate jobs or have mm. been around for 10, 20 years in this industry. Uh I tend to see a trend overall where especially once I mentioned sort of what I've done in the past and now publishing director for tag uh that people shift those expectations and um tend to treat me more normally like everyone else that they w- would meet um and with that added factor of being so young and having been been around for a couple of years now, there is a sense of i guess wonder is a little bit too much uh on the nose, but just a um a surprise element that usually helps me out because people tend to be impressed that that 14-year-old kid is <laughs> so far into, the, into his uh, career, I guess. How, uh, if I may ask, how old are you?
0: I am twenty eight. Okay. Uh, no, I, I am lying to you. I am twenty nine. Uh, my birthday, oh, my birthday, recent birthday. Yeah, my birthday was on Sunday, but uh, oh, I had no wow. cake and no party <laughs> well, because
1: of the coronavirus. It <laughs> so. delayed congratulations, uh, happy birthday.
0: Well, thank you, thank you. I appreciate it. I, I appreciate it. Uh, th- this was the loneliest birthday of my life so far. Um, let's hope that doesn't continue. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I am twenty eight. Uh, so I, I've been working uh, for a while, and I had that same thing where I was not taken seriously for a while, um, Mm -hmm. until, you know, maybe I had something to show, but if I was just sitting in a meeting room, uh, you know, they were just looking at me as the kid in the room. Um, and I have a gigantic deal of respect for you because you're 23 and you are already where you are. Thank you so much. Um, uh, uh, I mean, I, 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 I should probably discuss this with someone older because it's going to be weird to, to tell it to you, but, um, For a good portion of my career, I always felt that I was late. I still kind of feel that. Like I feel like by uh, now I am 29. I should have already one good success under my belt. Like uh, I feel like um, what I felt when I was like 23, 24, 25 uh, is that oh okay, so uh, at this stage I have my company. I have I you know we're making games. uh, uh, This is. Maybe not impressive, but it's okay. You know, I'm, I'm young and I have a company, uh, but now sort of like I'm running out of the time where, I, where it's impressive that I'm young and I have a company, and now I just feel that I'm late, that I I, I was supposed to be successful uh, two, three years ago, and now I'm kind of late to the party and I feel kind of disappointed in myself. This is turning into a therapy session. Uh, <laughs> but uh, how it is, I, I don't know if you have anything to say to that, because I, I respect you so much for being so young and already, uh, in a such a good position.
1: Well, first of all, yeah, I, I really appreciate, it, but I really wouldn't um, worry about that too much. Uh, as I said, like I got incredibly lucky. It's a it's a rare case where uh, I had a lot of things handed to me, a lot of opportunities. I really didn't plan anything, and things just happened out of pure luck. In the end of the day, um, I have friends that are entering this industry at age forty plus. Like the the good thing about the games industry is it. I'm not sure if it's a English term. We have a term in Germany that basically translates to lateral entry, mm. like where you work in a different end industry and then at some point transition into games, just because it's such a weird industry where a lot of people don't stick around and shift between jobs into games and then out of games again. Um, and in general, it doesn't feel like too many people care. Like if you're doing something at a young age, cool, that's great. If you're doing something at, at an older age, totally fine. This industry is open to you as long as you're open to everyone else. And especially at age 28, like I, some friends of mine are still studying at twid, age 28 and will do so for another two or three years, which again, that's perfectly fine in this day and age. So I wouldn't put too much pressure on yourself.
0: Yeah, don't don't mind me. I mean, this is, I guess, my struggle. Like um, mm. uh, the, the thing that I struggle the most mentally is is this. is basically just... Uh, uh, feeling perhaps not successful enough for uh, for where I think I should be
1: uh, at at this stage uh, in my career. But can I ask you a question? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Um, one thing that I always wonder about because I I've seen that uh, on myself already, and I'm and I still have a couple of years to, in theory, give it a shot. There's this whole trend of the 30 under 30 lists, oh. which personally for me seem incredibly pressurizing because there's these 10 15 20 people each year that manage to get on those lists and for everyone else the age under 30 it puts more pressure on them and the age over 30 it feels or i, I think it may feel like oh they didn't make those lists or they're not as special as these other folks have you ever had that feeling uh, um i never cared about accomplishments
0: like that okay i, I don't want to meddle Mm-hmm. um i i kind of have my own goals and i want to reach them uh at the same time um i'm i i'm not a fan of a maybe not awards in general but these kinds of awards that usually are just awarded by uh a journalist or or a panel of journalists are more usually uh related to how much you are known
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, rather than how much you are doing yeah because um uh, there might be some incredibly talented um, developers somewhere in Thailand that we don't know about, but they come out with this game and they're like, whoa, uh, but nobody knows who they are. Nobody knows their name. They, they. Can you name anybody? I mean, uh, this is something that Michael Pachter, I think, was saying, but he was saying like, hey, can you name anybody from Rockstar? Uh, and most people can't. And, you know, they make Red Dead Redemption. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know if, um, yeah, I, personally, I don't care. Um, and and I, and I think people should not care. I think that part of the reason why this, this podcast is called biz dev quest is that everyone is on its own quest. And if I ask you, Hey, what is your quest? You will give me a different answer than somebody else. Mm Um, for instance, uh, you you were talking about lateral lateral movement, I think, um, before, and uh, our latest hire, his name is Alessandro Manzani, and I think he is one of the best artists that we have in Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, he is forty one, uh, and up until age thirty, he was a he was working for an architecture firm. Oh, great. Uh, firm basically, uh, and he was like, ah, this is not for me. I'm done with this. I now want to go learn how to make video games, and uh, he he quit and went back to school at 30 uh and i have so much respect for him uh for this same reason so
1: yeah no that's fantastic and that's the thing like i i feel in our field or generally any field that includes a lot of um a lot of social media visibility i like to call it there's this raised bar of expectations, because we all are a lot of us tweet about their their achievements yeah. and what they've done, and you never really see what's behind that wall of tweets, what other people have to go through um and that's sort of a trend in this day and age that's probably just going to get worse realistically like if if we want to be honest uh but something that definitely needs to be addressed because it. It puts so much more pressure on people.
0: Yeah, that's. I'm. I'm kind of allergic to social media because I'm. I'm kind of allergic to, um, posturing in a way. Um, I do jujitsu. Uh, and I think that jujitsu is incredibly, humbling of an experience because you getting choked out by another human being, uh, just puts kind of like puts you in your place. And uh, yeah, nowadays there's a lot of, social media stuff that people do is like, uh, Hey, I want this award, look at me. Uh, and you know, I understand it because it, here's the thing. It's also difficult because you have to do a certain amount of social media. If you want to be relevant, you know, if you want to build a name for yourself, if, if you want to get your name out there and start to meet people and stuff like that, you have to do a certain amount of that. You have to do a certain amount of self-promoting and all of that. Uh, so and, and I understand that uh, some people might just feel proud and, and and put out their achievements stuff like that so I, I'm not trying to read necessarily malice into every post but yeah I don't know I, I'm, I'm just ranting um I, I generally I am kind of allergic to social media I like to stay quiet and and work uh, but also I feel like um, I, I really feel like to go back to my 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 psychological issues <laughs> I feel like until I have a good success under my belt I can't really tell anybody what to do like uh you know uh, until i have a game that i can point to and be like yeah i made this i really feel um ashamed to 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 be out there and be like this is how you should do things and stuff like that i try to help people that i think are earlier than myself in the quest Mm -hmm. but generally speaking i just try to
1: keep my hands down and work one thing that i've seen with um a lot of People that you would probably or that I would call like the indie heroes of this of this day and age is that they feel very similar like they're in a the spotlight they have their tens of thousands of Twitter followers and have maybe had their breakout success title, but they still feel somewhat somewhat bad about trying to teach other people because mm-hmm. they still see themselves in a the light of, well, I've only had one success or maybe only two success stories. And I'm still not there um, on, on that level that uh, my indie hero of five years ago was at some point. I, I guess it's a natural behavior where of us or a lot of us feel like imposters. The way I try to phrase it usually is, or the the way I try to look at things usually is there's so many really horrible people out there uh, in general, not only games industry, in general, yeah. like that get funding and that uh, are successful and have a lot of money and a lot of connections and are well-respected. So if they're out there and getting all these opportunities, why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't we be able to speak about what makes us proud, what makes us excited, what things we have created that we are proud about? Um, So I tend to try to see things from that perspective, rather from the pessimistic perspective that I haven't created anything. Because there's, there's no game I've put out there that's been a huge success. I worked for a small indie company in Munich, and I will forever be grateful for their achievements and their work and having been given that chance. But there's not a title that I could name you from their portfolio that you would probably have heard about. And uh, after that I worked in events and publishing. And again, no game that I've put out has been that indie breakout success story. So I, I think it's, we all somewhat feel the same no matter how successful or less successful we've been. And success somewhat is also something that you would, that that's very subjective.
0: Yeah. And, and that's sort of like what I'm trying to, to cope with and what I've been trying to cope with for the past year. <laughs> um, Uh, Again, I go back to jujitsu and uh, I, I define confidence as knowing where you are in the food chain, more or less. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, in jujitsu, you start as a white belt and uh, everybody beats you and it's very frustrating. Um, but then eventually you start to get better and get better and get better. And eventually you get awarded a blue belt. Mm-hmm. And suddenly now you are a, a, a step higher in the food chain. And, and you know, you start to roll with white belts and, and you realize that now you are tapping them and you are getting better and stuff like that. And so I feel now possibly more comfortable with the fact that I am a blue belt game developer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, I know where I was. I know the mistakes I made as a white belt and I'm trying my hardest to get better. But at the same time, if a white belt comes to me with asking from some advice, I can maybe be like, Hey, I made this mistake. You maybe try not to make it. And that's how it's sort of like, I'm coping
1: with it. Yeah. That sounds great. Uh, I, I really respect that approach.
0: Uh, I want to ask you a very random question just to shift gears. Sure. The, the hat, <laughs> is that a notch thing? Did did you take that from, from, uh, because I remember when Notch was around, okay, no, but somebody was, I I don't remember, I think this was a GDC talk, but in this GDC talk, somebody uh, was talking about being recognized uh, with something, you know, either you are the guy with hat or you are the guy with uh, something. Is that, was that because of that or no?
1: Uh, No, Uh, honestly, for me, it was, it's also very random uh, response, I guess. In the Megabooth, uh, back when I was volunteering for them first um, at PAX East 2015, I believe, they had a bunch of like merch or um, clothing items that they were giving out. One of them being, I think they had snapbacks, like hats, and uh, T-shirts back then, or maybe even a sweatshirt. So everywhere I went, because I was a big fan of what they were doing and what they stood for in this industry, I wore everything for Megabooth. Before that, I never wore any hats, but then suddenly, uh, and that was... I guess 2015, so like age 17, 18 for me? 18, 19? Something around th- those lines. Um, I started wearing the hat everywhere, the Megabooth sweatshirt everywhere, the Megabooth t-shirt everywhere. And at some point I didn't wear the Megabooth sweatshirts anymore and the Megabooth t-shirts, but the hat stuck around. And at some point I got other, like right now it's a Seahawks cap from my favorite American football team. Um, So not connected to Notch at all, but I must say the hat, since you mentioned it as well, is something that definitely has made me even more recognizable. Although the red hair alone and looking this young has helped with that as well.
0: I mean, no, no I mean you must keep it now. I mean, you can't, you can't, right? You can't go back anymore.
1: <laughs> I, I think so. Like for me, I don't see it going away anytime soon. But I've been told that I look younger with the hat. So. That's something to at least consider.
0: I, I have no strong opinions. Uh, I, I think it looks great. I mean, I don't think it makes you look younger or older, but uh, <laughs> I appreciate it. You, you have to keep it until you're 80. I'm sorry, the, this <laughs> is gonna be you for the rest of the industry.
1: Cool, okay. I'll, I'll blame you then moving forward if someone asks why I always wear the hat.
0: Great! Point them to the to the podcast because I'm sure in eighty <laughs> years it's going to be it's going to be a massive success. We can look back at this episode and be like that. That was yeah, that was. It'll it. be
1: the industry leading podcast.
0: Well, I, I don't know. I, this is still a white belt podcast, but um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you feel about um this podcast. Let's let's be very meta here. Okay. Um, but one of the reasons why this podcast exists is that um I think uh, there are perhaps not many conversations out there between developers and publishers and other developers and other publishers about this industry. You know, mm-hmm. we are in this together. We have to work together. Um, we deal with certain issues. You guys deal with other issues. Sometimes our issues collide and and we have to find a way that is the best for everybody. But perhaps there's not enough conversation out there. Some of this, there's like an aura of mysticism uh, around all of this and uh uh, whenever somebody's like, uh, like a Mike Rose tweets out some numbers or anything like that, everybody just jumps on it because it's like, oh my God, it's the holy grail of information. I must jump on it. Um, and I kind of wanted to bring some humanity uh, to, to this, to this conversation. How do you feel? I,
1: I like that approach a lot. I mean, there's a good reason why someone like Mike Rose or the Raw Theory team, which is also very transparent about their approach um, or Devolver who, I mean, they, literally published a book about their backstory, about how everything came into existence in the early days of Devolver. And uh, generally, I feel there's so much information that we can learn from that's not being shared. So the whole new era of not only data analysis, which Steam Spy and Steam Data Suite and all these other um, platforms are starting to take advantage of, but also the transparency with sales figures and visibility and general experiences with different business partners in this industry is something that's super positive and hopefully will be, or will leave a positive impact for sort of the next generation sounds bad because I'm 23, but like the the students that are just now graduating and moving into this industry and they have all this additional data and information available that wasn't available five years ago even. So I think it's a good trend and I, uh, I'm happy to see that you're also trying to encourage that with, with the podcast.
0: Yeah. uh, I, I, you know, anybody that knows me knows that I'm, I'm a guy that always tells the truth or or at least tries to, and, and I have a, a a hard time not saying what I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, so (laughs) this was kind of a natural, uh, progression for me. And I'm genuinely curious, you know, I, I, if I have somebody in the room that knows something that I don't, I try to, you know, poke them and be like, Hey, tell me this thing that you know that I don't, uh, and trying to figure it out um and, and and learn from it um i think i think you also were involved recently in a panel about entering the industry mm-hmm. um and 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 you talked about uh you know encouraging new people to enter the industry and stuff like that obviously you did a lot of volunteering and that was sort of like your way in um what would be your number one um suggestion to somebody who wants to
1: enter the industry oh that's a that's a tricky one um one thing i should generally mentioned about volunteering is it's helped me a lot. Like literally every single job I've had throughout my career, my short career, arguably in this industry has come directly through meeting someone through volunteering. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, I was also very lucky that the volunteer opportunities that I took, uh, just happened to be focused on making it a worthwhile time and experience for the volunteers. So uh, early on, as mentioned, Indie Mega Booth kind of being the most underlining thing, but also being part of the Indie Arena Booth, which is um, the sort of Gamescom equivalent of what Mega Booth does in in the US, um, being part of that volunteer experience was also a very positive experience. What I'm trying to say is there's the positive examples, but there's also more and more events happening these days, excluding the current situation with the coronavirus where everything's getting canceled. Um, But prior to that, more and more events popping up everywhere and therefore more and more volunteers being looked at or uh, being um, required to manage their events. And there is a certain good percentage of event organizers that put volunteers first and want to make sure it's a worthwhile experience and they get some form of return on investment. Some are being paid, some don't have those resources, but that's fine as long as there's a return on investment. But there is a substantial amount of events out there that are looking for free labor in return for basically nothing. So if someone decides to go down the route of volunteering, um, they should be very cautious about where they spent their time and uh, why they spent their time there. Like being active in your local community is great and I would always encourage that. But if someone is just trying to get free labor out of you and you're seeing nothing in return and the industry isn't becoming a better place due to your commitment, then it might not be the place to invest your time into. Um, So that's sort of my most important messaging when it comes to volunteering. Outside of volunteering, I think there is a, a growing support system where a lot of the bigger folks in, in this industry, uh, a most a good recent example being Callum uh Underwood, who used to work for or who used to scout for Raw Fury, now he has his own thing called Robo Teddy and is doing some scouting and some biz and advising here and there across the industry. Um I remember him uh, late late last year taking on some some mentees I think is the word Mm -hmm. so basically him becoming a mentor for uh, new and um, diverse folks in this industry that needed somewhat of a introduction or at least a a helping hand that uh, will give them feedback over time and uh, that's a very good development Uh, it's still very slow and not happening to the degree that we might should be doing it but positive examples like Calm out there uh, sort of underline how more and more people are happy to spend their time and offer help and offer support or just be kind of a, a, listening, a listening person in a conversation that you can bounce some ideas off of. And having that person early on in your career, which for me, that was Yasin Salmi. Again, the, the guy that hired me for my first uh, game dev job in Munich uh, is incredibly valuable and will help you a lot throughout your industry. That, that's the person you have to find.
0: Yeah, uh yeah I can I can definitely uh, attest to that having somebody that can teach you ropes or just uh, show you uh, where the pitfalls are so you you try to avoid it uh, it is uh, is very important especially in the beginning um, how how much do you think it's important to foster your own local community because um, here in Italy uh, we have a lot of uh, attempts I would say uh, to try to build a community, uh, across, uh, Italian developers mm-hmm. and try to help each other. Uh, you know, some, some work better than others. Um, but, um, I think uh, a lot of the push is coming, uh, sort of like directly from the top. Okay. Uh, there's this association called, uh, idea now it was formerly ISV, uh, but it's the association of Italian developers. And now they're trying to organize events in Italy and bring in, uh, publishers so that the developers can pitch to and stuff like that. Um, how much do you think that the your local community uh, do, it plays into that? Your na- your national community should you try to go regional? Should you try to have people at arm's reach? Um, because you built uh, Talk and Dev, or at least you inherited Talk and Dev, and but now you are making it grow and 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 turning it into something better. Um,
1: how much does that help uh, folks around you? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I I honestly can't can speak for them. I I hope it's helping the local community. I know at least for a fact that there is that Talk and Deaf is sort of one of uh, not too many local regular meetups that happen. So there is a chance for people to come together, um, even if they're a little bit less extroverted and wouldn't necessarily arrange meetings or grab coffees with uh, folks from the local industry, they have the opportunity to do that through something like Talk and Deaf or other events that happen as well in Munich. I personally think there is a lot to a lot to gain from having that sort of local industry or at least a industry network. It doesn't really matter if it's in your hometown. It can be helpful. But for me, since I'm barely there, it wouldn't really make a difference if they're all local to Munich or if they're all Germans or all uh, care about narrative games. But just having my crowd of people that I can bounce ideas off of, that I can talk to if I have some thoughts to share, or if I'm just looking for feedback, it's really great to have that um, that comfortable field of, of folks. Um, and being local obviously makes a lot of sense, but if you don't have the time or energy to build something yourself in your own city or own territory, everything has tur- like moved online at this point anyways which again to kind of close the cycle to the beginning of the conversation will probably increase over the next couple of months with the rise of the coronavirus. Um, and that's not a, a a good incentive to to move um, or not a good effect that that's happening right now. But generally speaking, having everything move online and be a little bit more connected and a little bit more internationalized, th- I feel in, the end will help this industry move forward as well.
0: And, and that was going to be my, my next question because, um, again, circling back to the beginning and kind of <laughs> the dread is is, uh, is coming back to me, but um, this corona thing is going to change everything. Yeah, uh, I, think I think 2020, so. the whole 2020 is compromised. Um, like people don't really realize how bad this is. And I think we're not going to shake this off until the next winter at least. Mm -hmm. Um, So I can already see that this is going to change a lot of things moving forward. Um, You know, uh, suddenly there's a generation that lived through a pandemic. uh, And uh, who knows? Because, you know, first, uh, like a month ago, I was just hopping on a plane, no problem, going to another country, coming back, uh, staying in a a train very close to people, everybody's coughing, I don't care. And now everybody's going to look at it differently. I don't know, that's going to change everything in terms of laws, in terms of all of that. How do you think our industry is going to change? Because some people think that, you know, aside from maybe hardware, the coronavirus is not really going to affect us. Uh, It might even put more people in front of computers. Mm -hmm. But do you see any change in the industry at all moving forward, considering what happened and what is happening?
1: I'm a big fan of events, but I personally feel like lo- going to events and and visiting new regions or even returning to uh, PAX East and West in and Boston, Seattle every year. Um, that being said, especially on the industry side of events, I think this is going to give a big opportunity to these online conferences that have tried to establish themselves for the last. It feels like the last two years, I guess, where they got more and more um, active and bigger and a little bit more um, direct when it came to outreach to uh, sponsors and folks that were supposed to participate in meetings. And I think they will have like this will be their opportunity to shine and grow and create a space that's not only open to companies with money or uh, oftentimes company companies in the Western Hemisphere but also everyone else uh, that has access to the internet, which luckily that's um, somewhat of a uh, established thing, at least in, at least in uh, a majority of territories. In others, it's still growing. But in general, I feel this is a opportunity rather than this big problematic situation, at least on a business level for, for networking, that is. When it comes to the events, uh, event space itself, having worked in events, I really don't know. This I think will have big consequences for years to come. I know that a bunch of events have already been cancelled, but I've been talking to friends of mine that still work in events and they're looking at canceling anything from now up until June or even later potentially. Because the fact is right now is basically when everyone would be booking their space at E three or Gamescom or Yeah probably also rather sooner than later, Pax West. And uh, with the whole question mark of how quickly this uh, pandemic will move on, hopefully, um, no one really is feeling that comfortable with putting down a chunk of money that might not be able to get, to get refunded later on. So I, f- I fully agree. I think we, we will feel consequences for probably months to come um, throughout this entire year. I, I also read an article, and that's very speculative, but on the whole cancellation of South by Southwest, how that might have massive consequences for a 2021 edition because they're they're losing tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars of income that uh, they will have to somewhat either make back somehow or save on other corners. They already laid off 50 staff, uh, as far as I Oof. read uh, yesterday evening. Yeah, and that's, it's just the beginning. Um, of one tiny sector that has somewhat of an involvement with games yeah so it's really hard to estimate but this will have major consequences
0: yeah and every everything is so connected because you know events is people working in uh, you know catering people that you know i i was at at um, egx yeah and egx uh, is in this big place and they have this huge corridor and this huge corridor is just Food places, mm-hmm. like left and right, left and right, left and right, and they live like all of these businesses, like small businesses, live on the fact that on that venue there's a conference at any time. Yeah, and for this whole year, no conferences there. I'm sure. So, yeah, it it's gonna be a a change for sure for everybody. So i i, I hope I hope we can um, reflect back on this and and try to make the best of this, like if this becomes an opportunity for some people in some unfortunate countries, or just in unfortunate uh, monetary situations, because you know, for the longest time, I couldn't afford to go to events. And so I was just, I was just sending emails. Uh, And you know, how effective a cold email is to a publisher, you know, they get a gajillion of them. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe this is going to be an opportunity for more people to, to be heard, perhaps.
1: Yeah, I think that would be uh, at least one one positive takeaway from the situation. I'd love to see that being the the biggest effect it'll have on this industry, but certainly it'll it'll also have some some very very negative ones which at this point it's it just feels hard to to estimate what what's still in front of us.
0: Yeah, indeed. Uh hey Chris, uh this was a wonderful conversation. Uh, I really enjoyed it a lot. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Correct me if I'm wrong. You are on Twitter at Chris Wolf underscore. Perfect. That's exactly it. Yeah. So you can follow Chris on Twitter at Chris Wolf underscore. Uh, do you have any, uh, last words
1: for our audience? Uh, Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank you as well for, for having me on the podcast and, um, hopefully see you at the next online conference.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll grab my VR headset and I'll see you there. Sounds good. Thanks everybody.
1: Wash your hands. Indeed!